while I have certainly encouraged you as a people to recognize that uh, the Lord is is working, we give the Holy Spirit freedom to direct uh, things that we proclaim from this pulpit. I do want to assure you that it is not uh, for the purpose that I'm concerned about um, a man having his father's wife, as it were, among our congregation. So I want to set you at ease uh, for that right now. Again, the... uh, uh, it is uh, uh, certainly appropriate that we think through what it is that we proclaim. As a matter of fact, the elders uh, in one of our meetings a few months ago had determined that it would be a good time for us to spend about three weeks on the doctrine of the church, and that's what, of course, we've been doing for last week and this week and next week, Lord willing, as well. Um, and interestingly enough, this passage here in 1 Corinthians 5, as well as an associated passage that I'll reference in Matthew 18, are some of the uh, significant basis for portions of our understanding of the authority of the local church. And so one of the, uh, hopefully the things that we'll pick up on in 1 Corinthians 5 is what appears to be an appropriate rudimentary aspect of the local body of believers. And that is simply how they maintain their own purity uh, and what they do in worship as well as discipline. So that uh, is really the... The, the reason why we're going to, by the grace of God, exposit this passage of Scripture today. And this also is directly associated with our own confession, uh, chapter 26, paragraph 7, which I'd like to read to you. To every church gathered in this way, conforming to Christ's mind as declared in His Word, He has given all power and authority that is in any way necessary to conduct the form of worship and discipline that he has instituted for them to observe. He has also given them commands and rules to use and carry out that power rightly and properly. So this passage of Scripture, 1 Corinthians 5, as I mentioned also, Matthew chapter 18, what we see here is... Uh, really a declaration by the Lord of the church, the one who died for the church, the Lord Jesus Christ, as he gives to us really uh, an understanding, an exhortation about his authority in the local church. And let me remind you that when we see the word church, particularly in the New Testament, it is most, most often a reference to the local body of believers, to the local body of believers. And it would also be important... Uh, that we understand that this this local body of believers, the authority that Christ expresses in this local body of believers, uh, is is the very pinnacle, if you will, of church authority. I'm going to let that sink in for a minute. There's no Baptist pope. We There's no presbytery for you to for you to look to beyond the local session in our congregation. It is our commitment and our understanding as Baptists uh, that the local church is the greatest expression of the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ on this earth. Now, that is carried, of course, in some significant humility as we see the Apostle Paul addressing the Corinthians here. And the Corinthian church got two letters that, of course, are in the canon. 
In chapter 9 of this chapter, or excuse me, verse 9 of this chapter refers to the letter that appears to be lost. And it is obvious, of course, that we don't need that letter as God's people. He's given us a complete canon here in the passage, in all of the scriptures, I should say. And so I'd like to just really begin here with a few questions um, as we look at this idea and the subject matter of the, the sermon today is the authority of Jesus Christ, particularly as we see it expressed through the local church. The first question, does the church have authority? The mere question may be a shock depending on your understanding of the local church. It may be that some people go to church because they're trying to escape authority. They desire, uh, they desire to go to a place in which they, they don't sense any burdens at all from any responsibility or anything like that. And there are certainly churches that can provide that for you. Another question, what is the necessity of church authority? What is the necessity of church authority? No doubt occasionally when you see someone driving a big one-ton truck with, you know, a lift kit and big giant tires, you you might want to ask yourself, do you need that? Like, what are you doing with this thing? You know? Uh, And so, what's the necessity of the authority in the church? Is it Is it something that's needful? Is it just bravado? I mean, do we just just sort of call upon the name of Jesus occasionally so that people get a little bit scared about the proclamation of the Word of God? The reality is, is that we're on a journey to the promised land. Our sinful flesh thinks it knows how to get there without asking for directions or a guide. In Bunyan's great work, Pilgrim's Progress, you might recall that there are two parts of that. The first part, of course, is Christian. The second part involves his wife, Christiana. Christiana had a guide. She had a guide that helped her. Christian didn't. And you might ask, how come? Because he didn't ask. What's the purpose of church authority? Why should I submit myself to church authority? A few answers to that question. We don't always have the most realistic understanding of our current position regarding matters of holiness and faith. We don't always have the most realistic understanding of our current position regarding matters of holiness and faith. We've talked about the Scriptures in terms of geography and navigation. Of course, Pilgrim's Progress is based upon that idea. We're going to a place together, the Promised Land, right? But we know one thing about navigation, right? If you want to get somewhere, you've got to know where you are. You've got to know where you are. And the authority of the church 
can help us and is designed to help us get a realistic picture of where we are spiritually. Because the reality is, is that our own sinful flesh, the wiles of the devil, and the culture and the world that we're surrounded with are inclined to give us a very, very different picture than that which is a reflection of reality. Secondly, why should I submit myself to church authority? The Lord of the church loves your soul more than you do. And that love is often expressed through preaching and shepherding. Next question, are church members required to submit to church authority? Yes, as it accords with the commands of Christ, the Lord of the church. Now, this is the same very appropriate proviso that would come with any concept of submission to authority, whether it's children and parents, whether it's a a, a wife to a husband, this sort of thing, as it accords with Scripture. What is the source of church authority? How does Christ express his authority? Why are so many skeptical of church authority? A few possible thoughts there. Many are rightly suspicious of other authority structures in their lives. If you weren't suspicious about certain authority structures in the world that you live in, you probably are not grasping reality. We could also look to the skepticism as a fruit of the cheapening of the preaching of the Word of God. I am persuaded this is one of the reasons why there's a certain attraction to the Catholic Church today. Because the Catholic Church has at least an appearance and an expression and an appreciation for the simple concept of authority. For this idea of authority. And there are many that have obviously cheapened this idea. Lastly, the cheapening of revelation. The cheapening of revelation. How many times do you hear, the Lord told me? Well, if, if that's our understanding of revelation, that it's instantaneous and continuing, and that it has no basis in the Word of God, then we can recognize that eventually it's like the little boy that cried wolf, right? It's like, well, I don't. I mean, you say the Lord told you this over here, and someone else said over here, and these are incompatible, and what does the Bible say, and so forth and so on. Last question. Why do so many recoil or react against the imposition of church authority? A few ideas here. One is the pride of men, the inclination to defend when called to account, a rarity of reproof and rebuke in churches. The distance between the congregation and the elders who express Christ's authority in the church. The absence of love in the administration of Christ's authority. There are myriad reasons, these are only a few, but nonetheless, why, why is there an inclination to recoil or react against this idea of church authority? Suspicion of authority can be like leaven which draws men to shake off all authority. Again, passing through what we just did as a nation, it's 
perfectly understandable uh, that there would be an inclination to shake off any aspects of authority, to, to really uh, recoil against that, to go and, in a sense, kind of attempt to isolate oneself away from these other aspects of life. Many appreciate expressions of authority until it requires of them repentance and humility, until it calls them to account. We like it when it seems to be for someone else. It is probable that the man referred to in 1 Corinthians 5 was a popular individual in the congregation, perhaps a natural leader why they were willing to overlook this heinous situation. Over 60 years ago, as Martin Lloyd-Jones was teaching on the doctrine of the church, he often focused on this matter of discipline because he viewed it as the main cause of the demise of the church. So if you'll recall, coming out of the Reformation, there was an understanding that the Scriptures revealed that there were three marks of the church. Three marks of the church. The proclamation of the Word of God, the right expression of the sacraments of God, and thirdly, the expression of church discipline. A three-legged stool is not a bad way to think of that. You remove one of those and you no longer have a church. You don't have a church. And so, Lloyd-Jones recognized many, many years ago that the main cause of the demise of the church was this refusal, this walking away of the appropriate biblical discipline in the church. And we can track this in our own day. If you you were to look, you could take uh, any even collection of churches through the period, say, between 1750 and 1900 in our own nation, and you will recognize that there was a tremendous transition from this idea of a pure church, of one who was continually in the process of exhorting, of expressing the truths of God, of applying appropriate discipline in a loving way, of seeing repentance and the fruitfulness of a loving... If you, If you... If you move along just in the matter of about 150 years, you'll begin to recognize that as churches begin to move more into the concept of, frankly, of entertainment, of a populism sort of idea, that what left off was uh, a keen sense of shepherding, of pastoral ministry, of this idea of, if you will, intrusive ministry by the elders in the church, uh, such that they would be concerned with the individual, with shepherding, and that moved into what we see in many ways today is just basically a preaching point and not really a church. The Bible reveals that it's not a kindness nor a mercy to overlook reproof and rebuke, to overlook discipline and the love for Christ and His blood-bought people. Now, it's also true that human weakness in leaders should garner greater levels of obedience to Christ. Human weakness in leaders should garner greater levels of obedience to Christ. 
Zechariah 4.6 says, Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. 2 Corinthians 4.11 and 12, we have, again, the apostle writing to the same church. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Now, one of the points that the Apostle Paul is trying to make, again, is we see the Apostle Paul in these letters to the Corinthians, he's contending against what some in his day had called super-apostles. A kind of perverted, sort of fantastic four, if you will, in the apostolic world. But in that, we see that the Apostle Paul regales, not in his own personal strength, but in his weakness. And he contends that there is an inverse mathematical relationship between the weakness of the church's leaders and the strength expressed in Christ. When he, rather he is strong when I am weak. The idea here is again that that in the weakness, in the humanity of those imperfect leaders that God has set to lead the church, the strength of Christ can then shine forth. That's the idea that we see in the Apostle Paul here. Now, we've referenced a little bit of our own confession. We see here briefly just kind of this catechetical you know, idea, what's the authority of the church, some answers for that from our own understanding. Looking back to the confession here, some key aspects. The local church is the recipient of the power of Christ. The local church has sufficient power to do all that God has called the church to do. The purpose of the power we see primarily in two things, the excommunication of members, that is the purity of the church, as well as the worship of God. The origin of this power is the Lord Jesus Christ. And there certainly is a regulation in the execution of this power. In other words, it's not some, you know, expansive power that you know, involves everything in the universe. This is really, if you will, centered on two ideas, discipline regarding the purity of the church and the right worship of God. Sam Waldron, in his excellent exposition of the Confession, has a few practical lessons that come out of this, and then as we look at 1 Corinthians 5, we'll set forth to prove some of these. First, the high authority of the true local church and the solemn privilege of being a member of it and under its authority. Secondly, the solemn responsibility of the local church not to abuse its power. Thirdly, the glorious liberty of the true local church. And fourthly, the vital origin of the power of the local church, the special presence of Christ. The special presence of Christ. Now I'd like to, again, begin this exposition here of 1 Corinthians 5, interestingly, with 
reference to Matthew 18, I want you to think about the special presence of Christ in your mind here. I'm going to read Matthew 18, verses 18 and 19. The words of Christ, Truly I say to you, Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. If we look at verse 20, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Now, we're thinking about the special presence of Christ. When we look at Matthew 18, in verse 20, this oft-repeated phrase, whenever two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of you. It's important that we recognize that this is categorically not a declaration of the omnipresence of Christ. It isn't. That is not what he's saying. The Lord Jesus isn't reminding us that God is omnipresent in this passage. We know that. We can look at other passages of Scripture and affirm that God is omnipresent. And it doesn't take two or three to conjure up the presence of Christ. That's not the point of this passage. The point of the passage is the special presence of Christ. I heard someone say yesterday that Jesus is everywhere. And that was a comforting thought presented in that way. And it doesn't have to be a thought that isn't comforting. It's just that we want to make sure what it is we're saying. Because apparently many people are going to go to hell in the presence of Christ. Right? So we're talking about the special presence of Christ expressed through the local church. And this is what we have displayed for us here in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Now, verse 1, it's actually reported that there's sexual immorality among you. And a sexual immorality that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. The grammar here, the idea here is simply that the Apostle Paul isn't kind of flying off the handle, uh, so to speak. He, he, he has it on authority that this is the case. It is a public situation. It isn't tolerated even among the pagans. The, the point here isn't that the unredeemed didn't have the sin in their midst but that the unredeemed rightly chastised those guilty of it and didn't approve of it or allow it to go unaddressed. Again, the Apostle Paul is saying, look, I mean, even those unredeemed people, even those wicked Corinthians, they don't think this is okay. But you guys do. And then we see the reason why they think it's okay. Right here in verse 2. 
and you were arrogant. Now, this, this idea of boasting of pride, this word for boast here, arrogance, we'll see it again in verse 6, a few other places, shows up 32 times in the New Testament. 21 of those times is in the letters to the Corinthians. Public math can be dangerous, but nonetheless, that's two-thirds. 21 and 32. Now, the point isn't that we can weigh on a scale here all the times he uses the term boast or arrogance and we can, you know, describe some sort of doctrine. But the point is, when we look at the authority of the church, it is appropriate that we understand that perhaps the greatest, and I would propose to you that it is, it is in fact a true statement, the greatest challenge to the expressions of the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ in the local church is nothing other than the pride of man. You were arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Calvin says, where there was grief, there's no more glorying. There's only room for one of those things. I can either be sorrowful for the sin in the midst, not even my own sin, but the sin <coughs> excuse me, of someone else in the congregation because we're a family. When one hurts, all hurt. When one rejoices, all rejoice. Ought you not rather mourn? But they met this challenge with pride, with being puffed up as the word is, if they were rightly sorrowful of this sin in their midst, they couldn't boast. Calvin goes on, indicates the duty of every church is to mourn over the faults of individual members. And thus, here we see that it's established that churches have this power. Whatever fault is within them, they can correct it or remove it by discipline. Paul in this passage, condemns the Corinthians because they had been remiss in the discipline of the one individual. Now, what is the Apostle Paul getting at here? I mean, we, already, we, we see this really brought up again in other, other places here in this one chapter. If we look at verse 9, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. In other words, the Apostle Paul is saying this, Hey guys, I've already brought this up. And you're still sitting on your hands. You, you have utterly misunderestimated the importance of this situation. Right? Here's, here's the deal. This, this leaven of sin has been and will continue to corrupt the entire lump. All of you. And you're, you're not expressing kindness... And you're not a big man, if you will, by refusing to deal with this appropriately and hoping for a humble repentance and a return back to faithfulness. Matthew Henry says, Pride or self-esteem often lies at the bottom of our immoderate esteem of others. And this makes us blind to their faults as to our own. 
His idea of immoderate here, Matthew Henry, if we can look back a few hundred years and see how the word was used, the, the idea here is that there's something that's not balanced. There's, there's an overextension, if you will, of, of um, appreciation. In other words, we see people with certain qualities that we particularly appreciate perhaps and we overlook things in their lives and give them a pass, if you will, because of it. We may be be doing the same things for ourselves. The point isn't that we're walking around with a clipboard judging people. The point is, is that we want to be careful... In, in the commendations, if you will, in the ways that we allow them to rule over and blind us of issues in our own lives. True humility alone, says Matthew Henry, will bring a man to, to a sight and acknowledgement of his errors. The proud either wholly overlooks or artfully disguises his faults or endeavors to transform his blemishes into beauties. Those of the Corinthians that were admirers of the incestuous person's gifts could overlook or extenuate his horrid practices. Now, one of the reasons that this comes into play particularly uh, is because, again, what we see in Matthew 18 as well as in 1 Corinthians 5 is that this expression of Christ's authority through the local church has to do with the church. It's brought about by the leaders, by the elders of the church, but nonetheless, it it must be, if you will, carried along by the congregation. And that's why it's so important for us to understand, as the Apostle Paul tells us here in 1 Corinthians 5, uh, for us to understand, okay, you appreciate certain individuals, why is that? Can you see past some of their problems? Can you, so forth, I mean, the, the, the boom may fall, okay, And let's be honest. And that's what the Apostle Paul is saying. Let's be clear. Let's look again. This is not a choose-your-own-adventure here, right? The Lord of the church has given to us instructions, and, and, and the greatest expression of the love of the Lord of the church is to deal rightly and biblically with the things at hand. First Peter 5, 5. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Some of you, you've heard that the first sin was pride. And I know that uh, you, as I have as well, you, 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 might have some trouble formulating in your mind why it was that Adam and Eve are accused of being proud when it comes to the eating of an apple. Maybe that isn't difficult for you to see that they have simply decided that they can make up the rules as they go along and that that is a simple expression of pride. It is. But I'm persuaded that in general, as a people, even as a people of God, we have tremendously underestimated the power of our own sinful pride. (laughs) 
We've underestimated the ways that it keeps us from Christ. We've underestimated the way it impacts the way we read the Scriptures. We've underestimated the way that it negatively impacts our relationships with other people. We've negatively, or rather underestimated, the ways that it hinders us in our walk with the Lord. We have cheapened the idea of holiness and sanctification. Preston brought up this book by Jerry Bridges called Respectable Sins. I don't recall all of that book, but I would venture to guess that certain aspects of pride are in the book of Respectable Sins. The point is, is that we've come to sort of agree generally that it's okay. There is no version of pride that is okay. Now, I understand that sometimes the word is used in Scripture, but it's important in a positive way, nonetheless. But it's important for us to understand that typically the way that we use the word pride, there is no version of that that is approvable by Christ. It's, it's, it's about us. And the Lord Jesus Christ is interested, if you were to make a list in priority of the things that He is very interested in, at the very top of that list is to see pride in your life evaporate and to see the Lord Jesus Christ triumph in every area of your life. The next time you're angry, ask yourself one question. Am I proud? Just ask yourself that one question. And then follow the string wherever it goes. Verse 3, For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. Paul is saying, in effect here, you who are present ought to before this time have applied a remedy to this disease, having it every day before your eyes, and yet you do nothing. If you want a little humor here, this is kind of like the Apostle Paul saying, you know, I could have dealt with this with both hands tied behind my back. No brainer. It's right here. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are delivered this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. We have here discipline is to be exercised by the common council of the elders and with the consent of the people, and that this is a remedy in opposition to tyranny. In other words, the elders aren't running roughshod here. There has to be consent and affirmation by the congregation. This is a prevention of the abuse of the authority of Christ in the church. Assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, we call upon the name of the Lord and attempt nothing that isn't in accordance with His word. It's also a matter of accountability to God, a charge. We are judged by Christ in our actions as a church. There's a real burden of responsibility and leadership in matters pertaining to the church and the application of Christ's commands to the church.
in the name of Jesus. It reminds me of the charge the Apostle Paul gave to Timothy in his second letter, chapter 4. I charge you in the presence of Jesus Christ. The control room on a submarine is very small. And about five paces from where the officer of the deck stands, his watch is the door to the captain's stateroom. He's always there. The man never sleeps. It is a picture of Jesus Christ and the church, there is always a sense of His presence. It's not a fearful thing. Some had commanders that they were afraid of, but I never did. And it wasn't because I'm fearless. It's because God was gracious to me. The Lord Jesus Christ loves us and He's always here with us. Yes, we, we are here. We're on the ground. We're, we're sweating. We're pouring our lives into this fellowship and so forth and so on. But the Lord Jesus Christ, as the authority of the church, is always with us. Not to drum His fingers. But to express... His powerful presence to help us with the power of the Holy Spirit, to help us understand His Word, to help us apply His Word, to help us walk in His ways. The very ominous passage here, you deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. It doesn't sound compatible with the idea, well, we'll catch it next time. This won't affect us. It'll be okay. That's not okay. We think about this burden of responsibility, Hebrews 13, 17, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. It's hard to read this passage and not seem a bit self-serving, but what I really would like to draw out of this is the simple idea that we must give account that thing that strikes fear in my bones every day. And it should. My entryway into eternity will likely be slightly different than yours for the simple fact that I have to give an account for the souls of those in this fellowship. That isn't something that I just think is really a great idea. It's something that does strike, as it should, fear in my bones. As I say, the Apostle Paul said to Timothy, I charge you in the presence of Jesus Christ. 
The captain could have had his stateroom wherever in the world he wanted it. But his was at the control room where it should have been. Jesus Christ is at the helm and he has grand expectations for those who serve him. Verse 6, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Paul's already addressed this idea of pride that God strips mankind of all glory. 1 Corinthians 4.7, in my Bible I can just look across the page here. 1 Corinthians 4.7, who sees anything different in you? In other words, here's the Corinthians and they're... Again, they're, they're in this process of boasting. Paul is continually addressing this problem of being puffed up. The, the Corinthians were a people who were of tremendous giftedness. I have no doubt they were very beautiful, capable people. I mean, they, everything they did seemed to go well. They longed for the gifts that seemed very conspicuous, not unlike today. I want the gifts with flash. I want people to be able to see what the Lord has given me. I'll use it for His glory. Promise. Who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you didn't receive? In other words, the Apostle Paul is saying, okay, let's, let's do a little exercise here. I want you to take a piece of paper and write down on it everything that's yours that God didn't give you. I know I gave you a piece of paper that's way too big for that. Oh, look, there's nothing on the paper. What do you have that you didn't receive? Goose egg. If then you received it, why do you boast as if you didn't receive it? He's dealing with pride. He says a little leaven leavens the whole lump. This issue of pride. The entire church is infected by the sin of a single individual. He says cleanse out the old leaven. Verse 7. That you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Now, this is a passage that's saying a number of things, but not least of which the Apostle is just saying this, be who you are. The Paschal lamb has been sacrificed. The Lord Jesus Christ has paid the penalty for your sins. You're clean. You're unleavened. But there's a process, if you will, involved in keeping those robes clean. Right? And that's what he's referring to here. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Again, verse 9 here I wrote in my letter as I referenced... He reveals just that they had been remiss. They had already been admonished in this area.
Verse 10, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers and idolaters, the revilers, the drunkards, the swindlers. Now the point is this here. The Apostle Paul is talking about the church. He's talking about people who profess faith, who have a credible profession of faith in the local body. The point isn't this. That the church is made up of perfect people. If you get that idea out of this passage, then I've done a horrible job. A horrible job. The point in this passage is that the expressions of the authority of Christ in the local church are to draw people, rightly so, into repentance and humble following of the Lord. We're not perfect, but we're repenters. There's a difference. We're a church to be filled with Christian behavior. To not repent of sin, to walk around in this pride that's pervasive and negatively impacts everything that it touches, that is to, to reject the expressions of Christ's authority. The issue isn't whether you're perfect, but whether you're repentant. That's, that's, the, that's the matter. And that comes into contact, if you will, with its greatest enemy in pride. Nobody's perfect. We don't expect that. We're, we're all in. We're going to be imperfect until heaven. We don't glory in it. When we fall, we get up. We make the falling and the getting up one motion. The Bible says the righteous man falls seven times and he stays down. No, it doesn't say that. It says he gets up. Yes, by the power of Christ. He gets up. He gets up. The question here isn't about perfection. It's about repentance and humbly following the Lord. It's Christian behavior to humbly repent and conform to Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit when confronted with error. When there's a refusal to humbly repent and work towards progressive sanctification on particular issues, the church only carries out the consequences of what sinning individuals bring on themselves, a casting out. It isn't Christian behavior. And that's the purpose of the authority. We're to maintain Christian behavior in a Christian church. Christian behavior, when it's confronted with error, repents. If the members of the faithful church consider obedience to Christ unimportant, then they will enter into what was promised by Christ, the reviling of, of God's Word. Titus 2.5, Truly the world reviles God's Word. Even many professing believers in Christ don't believe the veracity of Scripture. What am I saying? What, the point is this. We look at Titus 2.5. The point is this. When... I don't carry out God's Word in the church, then we encourage people to revile God's Word. That's the idea. Christ's commission requires an authoritative church acting in His stead to correspond to the inherent pride of man. Christ's commission requires an authoritative church 
acting in his stead to correspond to the inherent pride of man. Matthew 28, verse 18, Jesus came and said to them, these are the last three verses in the book of Matthew, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. You should ask the question, what is the purpose of Christ's authority in the local church? And the answer to that question is in the Great Commission. Because it turns out that making disciples and teaching to observe all that Christ has commanded involves the authority of Christ applied in His local church. Let's pray.